Hi everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. This week we are looking at the end of the two towers. No, really, this time I mean it, pinky swear. We have a paltry three slides taken from the end of chapter 10 of book four of The Lord of the Rings. Then we're going to look at some listener questions, or more accurately, more technically, we are going to look at at least one listener question which I received from about a thousand listeners, from many, many listeners are fascinated by, oh, what is that artifact called? Oh, the One Ring. We're going to talk a lot about that at the end of tonight's session and maybe some other things besides. Let's see how we do. Before we get started, though, a quick programming note. The production schedule for There and Back Again is linked to in the show notes accompanying every single podcast, and it is up-to-date and as accurate as I can make it, given my predilection for running long and adding extra sessions. I've had some questions recently about my long-term plans for this series. I think when we passed the midway point just a couple of episodes ago, some people started to get worried about what the future held for There and Back Again, but don't worry. There's lots to look forward to. Right now, we're scheduled to run through episode 103, a little less than 50 episodes from now. We're going to spend the next three months, starting next week, looking at the return of the king in our usual depth. I've scheduled a single week for the discussion of the appendices at the end of The Lord of the Rings, which is wildly optimistic. So that's almost certainly going to overrun horribly, and we'll add a few more right there at the end of The Return of the King. Then we're going to look at all six of the Peter Jackson movies in release order. So that's the extended cuts of The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, The Return of the King, An Unexpected Party, The Desolation of Smaug, and then The Battle of the Five Armies. We're taking two weeks per movie, so that is going to be another three months of discussion, which means that at the beginning of November in theory, probably in reality closer to Thanksgiving, possibly even closer to Christmas. We will see how that all works out. We are going to begin our discussion of the Silmarillion. Our discussion of the Silmarillion within the context of There and Back Again is not going to be comprehensive. My goal for this discussion of the Silmarillion is to make it accessible. Basically, what I want to do is bring as many people as possible who have never read the Silmarillion on that journey with me. As of this moment, I have scheduled a week each for the Ainulindale, for the Valaquenta, for the Akalabaeth, and for On the Rings of Power in the Third Age, the last section of the Silmarillion, plus 15 weeks on the Quenta itself, which forms obviously the, the heart of the Silmarillion. Um, so that's 20 weeks, including a postscript Q&A session, but we'll probably end up running 26, 28, something like that. In theory, then, we're supposed to finish the Silmarillion in April of next year, but June is more likely. I say all of this partly because, as I say, I've had questions about it, but because I'm also already thinking about the next part of this series, or alternatively, the next podcast series entirely apart from there and back again. And Honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about this because just so many of you are asking about it. Normally, I'm, I'm happy just to let these things unfold as they do. But here, even a year out from the end of There and Back Again, I'm already looking at the next project. So I'm thinking about delving deeper into Unfinished Tales, looking at Baron and Luthien, looking at some of Tolkien's other work. Basically, I don't think that I want to delve into the entire history of Middle-earth, but there's a lot of good material that wouldn't necessarily demand us looking at the close textual revisionist history of The Lord of the Rings, as fascinating as that would be. I'm also thinking about starting a similar and and thematically, tonally connected series after There and Back Again is done. Candidates right now include a series on the Bible as literature, which I've been discussing over the course of the last few weeks, the works of George R.R. R. Martin, the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, the entire Wheel of Time series, Stephen Donaldson's Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, Raymond E. Feist's Rift War series, Catherine Kerr's beautiful Celtic-inflected resonant lovely Devery series. The list goes on and on and on, and I'm sure I'll hear from all of you on your favorites from that list and on other things 
things that I haven't even considered. There are many, many other fantasy novels which are going to be covered in the course of, you know, a series of Point North one-shots or in the Point North patron-exclusive book club or in other places. I want to really look at something something substantial, something, something meaty, something with some depth in the next couple of years. Suffice to say, we've got at least a year left of There and Back Again and uh, lots more adventures ahead. So with that housekeeping taken care of, and with a reminder that you can find the production schedule right there in the show notes, it's just a, uh, a Google Drive spreadsheet that you can go and look at and everything is, is planned out, as I say, to April of next year. With that housekeeping taken care of, let's get into a very brief reading for tonight's session and the introduction of our favorite orcs, I guess, Shagrat and Gorbag. The eye was busy elsewhere, I suppose, said Shagrat. Big things going on away west, they say. I dare say, growled Gorbag, but in the meantime, enemies have got up the stairs. And what were you up to? You're supposed to keep watch, aren't you special orders or no? What are you for? That's enough. Don't try to teach me my job. We were awake all right. We knew there were funny things going on. Very funny. Yes, very funny. Lights and shouting and all. But Sheob was on the go. My lad saw her and her sneak. Her sneak? What's that? You must have seen him. Little thin black fellow, like a spider himself, or perhaps more like a starved frog. He's been up here before. Came out of Lugbors the first time years ago, and we had word from high up to let him pass. He's been up the stairs once or twice since then, but we've let him alone. Seems to have some understanding with her ladyship. I suppose he's no good to eat. She wouldn't worry about words from high up. But a fine guard you keep in the valley. He was up here a day before all this racket. Early last night we saw him. Anyway, my lads reported that her ladyship was having some fun, and that seemed good enough for me until the message came. I thought her sneak had brought her a toy, or that you'd perhaps sent her a present, a prisoner of war or something. I don't interfere when she's playing. Nothing gets by Shelob when she's on the hunt. Nothing, say you. Don't you use your eyes back there. I tell you I'm not I tell you I'm not easy in my mind. Whatever came up the stairs did get by. It cut her web and she got and got clean out of the hole. That's something to think about. Oh, well, but she got him in the end, didn't she? Got him? God, who? This little fellow? But if he was the only one, then she'd have had him off to her larder long before, and he'd be, and there he'd be now. And if Lugboris wanted him, you'd have to go and get him. Nice for you. But there was more than one. At this point, Sam began to listen more attentively and pressed his ear against the stone. Who cut the cords she put around him, Shagrat? Same one as cut the web. Didn't you see that? And who stuck a pin in her ladyship? Same one, I reckon. And where is he? Where is he, Shagrat? Shagrat made no reply. So, Shagrat... And Gorbag, coming upon the body of Frodo Baggins, watched unseen by Sam, who is, lest we forget at this moment, currently wearing the ring. Shagrat uh, is a rough combination of two fairly unpleasant common English words. Shag meaning uh, matted, oftentimes dirty hair, and rat meaning vermin in the general sense. The old English uh, sense of rat just meant, just meant vermin or pest. So Shagrat and Gorbag, I mean, probably doesn't need much translation. He is a bag of... Gore. He is a he is a meat sack. Is what I'm basically saying. So Shagrat and Gorbag here are our orcs. The other word that is introduced here, Lugburs. That is the name of Baradur in the Black Speech, composed of the two words Lug, meaning fortress or or prison, and Burs, meaning dark. Which is, of course, in the classic Tolkienian fashion exactly the same word as it is in Sindarin. Baradur means dark tower in Sindarin. Lugburs means dark fortress, dark tower, in the black speech of Mordor. 
So this is our introduction to the orcs of Mordor, and this is a little challenging. We've met orcs before, of course. We've met the Urukai, and we've met Grishnak and Azog and Bold and the Great Goblin, uh, Bolg, excuse me, and the Great Goblin back in the pages of The Hobbit, and a handful of others besides. So this isn't our first time getting named orcs. This isn't even our first time getting characterization for orcs. Not our first time getting attributed dialogue from them. But the extended conversations that we get between Shagrat and Gorbag are, I think, unique in The Lord of the Rings. They represent not just the movement of the plot or the broad-stroke characterization of the enemy, but these scenes give us our best glimpse yet at what an actual, established, day-to-day orc culture would look like. And though it's a mean kind of quotidian existence, it is still clearly a culture. This is conversation. They're dealing with the hierarchy of authority here in Mordor. They're dealing with the orders from high up. They're dealing with this this tense and and somewhat combative, but also ultimately submissive relationship with her ladyship, with Shilob here. And that greater sense of orc community gives us some problems because orcs are simply and irredeemably evil, right? We know this from the narrative of the story itself. Characters who are capital G good have no compunction whatsoever about killing orcs. Indeed, quite the contrary. The moral good in the world of Middle-earth, in the world of Tolkien's Legendarium, seems to involve the killing of as many orcs as possible. Think uh, Think of Gimli and Legolas cheerfully keeping score about the number of sentient, sapient creatures that they have murdered in the course of their war. Think of Treebeard coming around on Gimli when he discovers that his axe, and he's told by Legolas that his axe is not, in fact, for hewing wood or for hewing trees, but rather for the hewing of orc necks. The uh, quote that we get there, Strange it may seem, said Legolas, but while Gimli lives, I shall not come to Fangorn alone. His axe is not for trees, but for orc necks. O Fangorn, master of Fangorn's wood, forty-two he hewed in the battle. Oh, come now, said Treebeard, that is a better story. We're supposed to look pretty positively on the killing of orcs. Even after escaping from Khazad-dûm and finding themselves in Dimrald Dale, Aragorn, when he is treating Sam's head wound, says to him, Good luck, Sam, he said. Many have received worse than this in payment for the slaying of their first orc. The cut is not poisoned as the wounds of orc blades too often are. Great job, Sam. Great job, gardener from the home. You killed your first orc. This is such a great day for you. I feel like we should all smoke a cigar or something. Like We should have a moment of, of celebration. We should mark this moment. You just killed your first orc and you've taken your first step into a wider world. Killing orcs is good. Killing orcs, you guys, is awesome. It is the greatest moral good in which a man or parenthetically dwarf elf hobbit of stout heart and good nature can engage in. This is what we do. We murder them by the bushelful and we murder them absolutely without regret. Now, as I've mentioned before, this gives us a potentially problematic narrative element. And I say only potentially problematic because Tolkien did not pin down the origin story of orcs. Through his entire career, he goes back and forth on where orcs come from, on what they are, on how long they live, on whether or not they are possessed of souls. Though, Ultimately, he comes down pretty hard on that last point. He, he's pretty resolute in the assertion that, in fact, they don't have, uh, have souls. In Morgoth's Ring, volume 10 of the History of Middle-earth, Tolkien himself asserts that orcs are beasts humanized into parodies of elves and men by Melkor and are soulless. They are twisted creations. They're not really 
humanoid at all. Like, they're not thinking creatures. Their speech is, he says in his accounting there in, in Morgoth's Ring, volume 10 of the History of Middle-earth, he says that they speak parrot style. They, they, they repeat things that are encoded into them by Melkor at the moment of their creation. Some say that Melkor created the orcs from, from rocks and from earth and from slime, much as Aule did with the dwarves. The Silmarillion itself very casually, like very quietly right there, suggests that the orcs are actually corrupted versions of the very first elves. Elves that Melkor discovered as they awoke in the the distant prehistory of the world before they were discovered by the other Valar. So our history of the elves, which we've discussed before on There and Back Again, is somewhat incomplete. In fact, step one of elves is elves wake up, step two of elves is, and then some elves were taken by Melkor and turned into orcs. Some accounts, particularly accounts, letters written by J.R.R. Tolkien later in his life, suggest that in fact the orcs were corrupted men. This was something that he ultimately seemed to have wanted to do toward the end of his career, toward the end of his life. He wanted to turn them from being corrupted elves into being corrupted men, which obviously works a little more resonantly and does give us a potential kind of resolution, a philosophical resolution for the killing of orcs and the the wanton war against orcish culture. And there's even an allegation, an assertion, uh, a suggestion that some orcs or all orcs, question mark, are in fact fallen Maiar, that, that, that individual Maya have taken the form of orcs in Melkor's service, which may explain why some orcs seem to be immortal, while most orcs presumably, are not. We'll talk about the lifespan of orcs a little later, I guess. I have a question from the wonderful Varig of Khand here in the question box already about the lifespan of orcs, and we'll talk about that if we have time right at the end of this session. And of course, there's also the implication through the the depredations of Sauron at Isengard that some orcs, if not all orcs, are the product of crossbreeding between one or more of these you know, extant solutions, one or more of these proposed possible solutions, and men, or and elves, or and beasts of the field. We have no idea quite how that would work, but that's a possibility too. So we have no problem harming orcs. We have no problem hurting orcs. We have no problem whatsoever causing orcs pain. And there seems to be no moral or philosophical objection to killing them outright, Which means that if we are to believe that the capital G good people of Middle-earth are, in fact, capital G good, that we have to find some kind of philosophical resolution to this. We have to find some kind of philosophical loophole that allows us to say, no, actually, killing orcs out of hand is not an evil act. And it's tempting in the first instance to say that orcs are simply evil. They have been corrupted by darkness. They have been corrupted by Melkor. They have been corrupted by Sauron. They have been corrupted by the Shadow. They are just bad. They are beyond any hope of redemption. Thus, it isn't just morally necessary to kill them in a utilitarian sense, but it is actually merciful to kill them, right? That that in their corruption, they have no hope of redemption. Thus, we kill them. And if they don't have souls, then we have just removed a problem from the world. And if they do have souls, then their souls are going to go wherever orc souls go, presumably to the elven halls, if in fact they are corrupted elves, or better still, onto their final reward if they were corrupted men. If each individual orc still carries within him that that fea, right, that, that spark of soul or of spirit usually gifted to man at the moment of their birth that, that leaves the world of Arda behind and goes on to their eternal reward upon the moment of their death, then killing them is actually... 
I mean, an act of greater mercy. It is an act of profound mercy to remove them from this veil of tears, to remove them from this life of evil and corruption. Not just the evil and corruption that is innate to the orcs, but the evil and corruption that they that they do, that they act, that they spread through the world. We free them from that, and their souls go wherever their souls go. There's also the possibility that if orcs are in fact crafted from earth, if they are warped from beasts, that they have no souls, that they are not, that they are clearly sentient, but not sapient, right? They, they lack the ability, it's funny, because we're going to be talking about sentience and sapience later in the context of the ring too, but it is possible that they are sentient, but not sapient, that they are not actually individuals, that they are not actually people, that they are not actually characters or personalities, that they are simply functional automata, right? That they are more like golems in the D&D tradition, I suppose, that they are are crafted beings. And when we destroy them, it is an act of violence, but not an act of of murder. It is It is not an act of kind of unspeakable or unforgivable violence. I have a problem with the idea of orcs being simply irredeemably evil because of the argument that Gandalf presents to Frodo back in chapter two of The Fellowship of the Ring, which we'll also talk about later in the context of the ring, funnily enough. We've discussed this a few times in recent weeks. I'm not going to delve too deeply into this, but it is, of course, Gandalf's assertion that while there is a small hope for Gollum's rehabilitation, for Gollum's redemption, he should not be killed. Like, many who live deserve death and many who die deserve life, right? Can you give it to them? He asks Frodo somewhat rhetorically. That's not what we do. We do not deprive individuals of life when there is the hope of redemption. But Gandalf also offers, as you'll recall, I'm sure, that more mystical, more less less moral and more rational kind of resolution to the problem of Gollum, which is that he suspects that Gollum has a role to play. Gollum is significant. Gollum is important in some way, and so we preserve him. If Gollum were not important, if Gandalf did not have this sense that Gollum was significant to the unfolding of history, if he did not hear echoes of, of the music when he thinks of Gollum, if he did not have some sense that Gollum was going to play an important part in imminent unfolding events... Would the argument that there is still a hope of redemption hold water? Would that stay Gandalf's hand? Or then would the utilitarian argument come into play? Would he be, in fact, obliged to kill Gollum because it is the more moral thing to do? And if there is no hope of redemption at all for any individual orc, are we really comfortable asserting that orcs are more evil than Gollum? The problem here is that Tolkien never really resolved this to his own satisfaction. He didn't resolve it to the satisfaction of book readers either, of course, but as he went back and revised his entire Legendarium, because this is a problem that occurs in his earliest stories, this is a problem that occurs in the pages of the or what would eventually become the Silmarillion. This is already in his head when we're thinking about The Hobbit, when we're thinking about The Lord of the Rings. In fact, just a tangent away from this for just a second, I would argue that the depiction of goblins in The Hobbit and the treatment of goblins in The Hobbit is, if anything, more philosophically nuanced than the treatment of orcs in The Lord of the Rings. Orcs and goblins, as I've said many times before, absolutely the same race, right? They're just called goblins in The Hobbit because that is the hobbity, shireish term for them, and they are called orcs in The Lord of the Rings because, well, actually, that's taken from the uh, that's taken from the Sindarin, right? The Ich gives us the uh, gives us the name of orcs. That's where that name comes from. Also, very interestingly, Tolkien, much later in his life, started spelling orcs uh, universally with a K because he didn't want any confusion about that terminal sound, right? 
he was writing the word orcish a lot as he was trying to resolve this problem, as he was trying to think through the role of orcs in Middle-earth, and he didn't want anyone to look at that and think that it should be pronounced orsish because of the, the potential for misreading that hard C, which is always a hard C in Tolkien's writing. I don't, he doesn't use the soft C in his, uh, in his constructed languages at all, in fact, but he wanted to kind of remove any possibility of confusion there and, and replaced it with an orc, uh, replaced it with a K, excuse me, which just makes me think of Games Workshop. It makes me think of, you know, the Warhammer Fantasy universe or the Warhammer 40,000 universe, which is a, another topic for another time, I'm sure. So what is the resolution to the orc problem? What are we to make of orcs? Well, for all of our discussions about orcs being corrupted elves, being corrupted men, possibly being, you know, automata carved from earth and slime, possibly being beasts which speak parrot fashion after the style and mode of Melkor, just repeating internal things that they have heard, that even their internal corruption and their their predisposition to rebellion and to internal conflict, that even that was coded into them by Melkor? Okay, let me put my cards on the table here. That is my least favorite explanation. I don't like that explanation at all. I don't hate the idea of them being corrupted beasts. I don't hate the idea of Melkor seeking to remold subhuman animals, right? Again, subhuman, sub-elven, sub-dwarven, but, but inhuman animals into the mode and manner of human beings, that actually seems quite true to what we know of Melkor from the Silmarillion, and it seems absolutely consistent that, that Sauron would continue to use those, those foot soldiers, those servants, those slaves in Barad-dûr and beyond. That element works for me, but I don't love the the mode of speech that they are then given. I don't love the idea that they are that Shagrat and Gorbag in this slide are simply repeating things that were encoded into them by Melkor countless ages past. I don't love that explanation. For me, the best possible resolution is the modern superhero blockbuster solution to this problem, right? We have moved past the point where we are comfortable with our superheroic figures, our Marvel heroes, our DC heroes, killing lots of people in the course of their story. This was, of course, a huge point of controversy about Man of Steel, the recent, super, fairly recent Superman movie over at DC. We're not comfortable with our heroes killing a large number of people, even bad people. We, we, we just don't like that. So instead, we replace them with inhuman-looking aliens or machines of some sort or another, right? We, we like the idea that our, our heroes can kill their way through the ranks of the enemy but not actually suffer any moral consequences because the things that they are killing, they're not actually killing, they are just destroying, they are disassembling. So I quite like the idea of Melkor creating the orcs from the earth in exactly the way that Aulai ultimately created the dwarves but without the breath of life of Iluvatar. That leads us to the inevitable conclusion, of course, that orcs lack Fea. Orcs do not have souls. They just have a rough and crude simulacrum of awareness and of personality and of identity and of civilization. That is my preferred solution to this problem. But the most consistent solution to this problem in Tolkien's Legendarium is that they are in the first place corrupted elves and then in the second place corrupted man. And if that is true... I feel much less positive about the relentless slaying of orcs, I have to say. I don't feel great about it as a, as a philosophical postulate. Are we supposed to believe that it is capital G good to kill orcs by the bushelful? That it is fun even to keep score of how many orcs we kill? I'm not a fan of that. Not, not, not a huge fan of that. But 
even then we can find this loophole that what we are doing in fact is liberating their souls. What we are doing is sending their souls to their ultimate reward, to the holes of Mandos or alternatively to the actual eternal reward that human beings get. Souls are tricky things in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, of course. So here we get the idea that Frodo and Sam have snuck in, Shagrat and Gorbag have managed to deduce, or Gorbag at least has managed to deduce what has happened here. Got him? Got who? This little fellow? But if he was the only one, then she'd have had him off to her larder long before. And there he'd be now. And if Lugburz wanted him, you'd have to go and get him. Nice for you, but there was more than one. Who cut the cords she put around him? Shagrat, same one as cut the web. Didn't you see that? And who stuck a pin into her ladyship? Same one, I reckon. And where is he? Where is he, Shagrat? Shagrat made no reply. The internal division among orcs here, an absolutely consistent element of their characterization in The Lord of the Rings. We'll remember, you know, Grishnak and the Urukai tr- uh, racing across uh, Rohan with Merry and Pippin back in the first half of The Two Towers, which seems like a million years ago, but nonetheless took place fairly recently in the unfolding events of the story. We're familiar with this dynamic among orcs, and we're not done with orcs yet. We're not actually done with, with Shagrat and Gorbag here at the end of The Two Towers. We're going to pick them up in The Return of the King, too. In fact, This is, in some ways, the least elegant dismount from a part of the book that we see in the entirety of The Lord of the Rings. I think I like the transition from book four into book five the least of all the transitions that we get in The Lord of the Rings because it is narratively incomplete. It is an actual bona fide cliffhanger ending, right? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. In fact, we'll talk about that when we get to it. Let's move on to our next slide. You fool, snarled Shagrat. You've been talking very clever, but there's a lot you don't know, though most other folk do. You'll be for the pot or for Shelob if you don't take care. Carrion? Is that all you know of her ladyship? When she binds with cords, she's after meat. She doesn't eat dead meat nor suck cold blood. This fellow isn't dead. Sam reeled, clutching at the stone. He felt as though the whole dark world was turning upside down. So great was the shock that he almost swooned. But even as he fought to keep a hold on his senses, deep inside him he's aware of the comment, You fool! He isn't dead and your heart knew it! Don't trust your head, Samwise! It's not the best part of you! The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. Now what is to be done? For the moment, nothing but to prop himself among the unmoving stone and listen, listen to the vile orc voices. Frodo isn't dead. Frodo has been poisoned by Shelob. Her final act, remember that she was, uh, she had knocked him unconscious and was binding him. And then when Sam attacked, tagged Frodo with her stinger and then took off. But Frodo is not dead. He has been injected with this paralytic. He has been frozen in a state near death, but not actually dead. And Shagrat knows this. And it is Shagrat's exposition to Gorbag that gives this moment of epiphany to Sam. Sam reeled, uh, clutching at the stone. He felt as if the whole dark world was turning upside down. The whole world around him is inverted by this knowledge because everything that he has just based the last, well, how long? 20 minutes, a half hour, maybe an hour. We don't know how long he sits with his cloak over his head. You know, when when darkness takes his heart, we don't know how long he sits there near Frodo. But it's probably been a little while. It's probably been a little while. But everything that Sam knows to be true about the world now, all the decisions that we discussed in the last session of There and Back Again, all of those were predicated on one simple truth. Well, Frodo's dead. And now I have to go on. Go on? Go on? This is Sam's role in the world. Only it turns out that Frodo isn't dead. It turns out that there is still hope. And that leads us to one of the most 
enchanting and evocative lines that we get in this entire part of the book. You fool, he isn't dead, and your heart knew it. Don't trust your head, Samwise. It's not the best part of you. The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. Don't trust your head, Samwise. It's not the best part of you, first off. This, I think, is completely unfair. This, I think, is is unfair. And we talked a little last time about who wrote these passages in the Red Book of Westmarch. Like, which of the hobbits sat down and composed this scene? This, I am certain, was written by Sam. This, I am absolutely sure, was crafted by Sam in the many years after the events of The Lord of the Rings. He looked back on this moment and cursed himself for his blindness. And yet... Not only can we, must we, forgive Sam for leaping to the inevitable conclusion at which he arrived, but it is necessary. Hoist your drinks, everyone, because this, this is catastrophe. Everything that unfolds from this point happens in part or in whole because Sam believed that Frodo was dead. He bore the weight of that suffering. He bore the weight of that despair. In this darkest moment, things turned aright. Things turned out better than anyone could have expected or predicted. And that happens because Sam believes that Frodo is dead. Because, well, not because he suffers, I suppose, in part because he suffers, though. I mean, the internal conflict and, and division that we discussed last time, this, this, this clash between the two sides of Sam, or as we theorized last time, a clash between Sam and some other voice contained within him, that conflict arises from Sam's simple belief that his master has died, and crucially, that his master has failed in his task and that Sam has failed in his. And thus, in order to salvage anything, Sam has to take up his master's task. Sam has to do the more important thing. This moment when Sam recognizes that, in fact, destroying the ring is more important than taking care of Master Frodo, that changes everything for Sam. And there is a clean delineation between Sam in book four and Sam in book five. And that will be reflected, actually, in a really interesting passage that we get to when we return to Sam in The Return of the King. I can't wait to get to that. The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. This, of course, calls back to the discussion between Frodo and Sam in which we discussed hope, in which we talked about the possibility of success. And Frodo, as you'll recall, had two distinct categories of hope. There was the hope that they would succeed in their task, very, very small, and the hope that they would return from their task alive and well and get to go home. Zero. No hope that that was going to be the case. And Sam has confirmed that, in fact, he never really had any hope either. He never had any hope for his mission. He never had any hope that they would destroy the ring, that they would save the day, that the world would be restored. His purpose was to do the thing that was put in front of him. His purpose was to simply care for his master. That was all that he had to do. But here he curses the lack of hope. And hope here, I think, is used in its broadest sense. Don't trust your head, Samwise. It's not the best part of you. The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. Don't trust your senses, Sam. Don't trust the entirely logical conclusion at which you arrived. Don't trust the fact that you laid your, your head on your master's breast and listened for a heartbeat and there was none. Don't trust the fact that his skin took on this greenish pallor when you believed that he was dead. Don't trust all of the evidence of your senses and everything that you know to be true about the world. You definitely shouldn't trust that. What you should trust instead is hope. What you should trust instead is light, is in eucatastrophe, is in this, this positivity, this, this turning to good that underpins the world, this reckless, defiant hope. 
that carries you forward even when you know you should falter, even when you know that you will be defeated. This reckless, defiant hope propels you forward. If Sam had had that, well, what would he have done? Would he have taken up Frodo's body? Would he have carried it onward? Would he have stayed with Frodo's body, trying to nurse him back to some kind of health? Would he have believed defiantly that the appearance of death, that the semblance of death was nothing more than a mask? Would he have believed that he could have somehow performed his ultimate duty and served his master in this moment over all moments? Possibly. But then, of course, all would have turned to wreck and ruin. We'll see how that plays out at the beginning of The Return of the King. Let's take a quick look here. Yes, Lauren saying, uh, don't trust your head, Sam. Trust ABCD. Where's your medical training? Very fair, very fair. Oh, and Jackie's leaving us to bathe her absolutely adorable new baby. Jackie, congratulations. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but congratulations on having a genuinely lovely baby. Jackie's just wonderful and her baby is too. Let's uh, push on to the very end of the chapter here. This is the end of the two towers, you guys. We made it, as promised. He's going out of harm's way, I tell you, answered Chagrat. See, he's precious. I don't trust all my lads and none of yours, nor you neither while you're, uh, when you're mad for fun. He's going where I want him and where you won't come if you don't keep civil. Up to the top, I say, he'll be safe there. Willie, said Sam, you're forgetting the great big elvish warrior that's loose. And with that, he raced around the corner, only to find that by some trick of the tunnel or the hearing which the ring gave him, he had misjudged the distance. The two orc figures were still some way ahead. He could see them now, black and squat against a red glare. The passage ran straight at last, up an incline, and at the end, wide open, were great double doors, leading probably to deep chambers far below the high horn of the tower. Already the orcs with their burden had passed inside. Gorbag and Shagrat were drawing near the gate. Sam heard a burst of hoarse singing, blaring of horns and banging of gongs, a hideous clamor. Gorbag and Shagrat had or- were already on the threshold. Sam yelled and brandished Sting, but his little voice was drowned in the tumult. No one heeded him. The great doors slammed to. Boom. The bars of iron fell into place inside. Clang. The gate was shut. Sam hurled himself against the bolted brazen plates and fell senseless to the ground. He was out in the darkness. Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy. And that is the end of the two towers. And... It ends in a really interesting place. We talked a lot about the ending of The Fellowship of the Ring and how purposeful and careful and well-composed the ending of The Fellowship of the Ring is. How specific Professor Tolkien is in his narrative intent. What is the end of The Fellowship of the Ring? It is not Boromir trying to grab the ring, you guys. That is not what ends everything. It is Frodo's decision to go on by himself. That is the true breaking of The Fellowship. It is not a betrayal. It is... An act of courage, in some senses, an act of love, certainly an act of, of faith, of belief, of hope. Frodo believes that he can go on by himself. He believes that he must go on by himself. And curiously, minor spoilers, I suppose, for the end of The Return of the King, but curiously, all three books of, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King, all end with Frodo and Sam being parted or almost being parted, right? Back at Parthgallon, Frodo was trying to leave Sam behind. Sam runs down the green sward toward the water. He leaps out, he splashes, and Frodo rescues him and drags him into the boat, and they go on together. Now Frodo has been taken again, and Sam is racing after him again, but can't quite reach him. The end of the return of the king, of course, is going to be Sam letting Frodo go. That is a very quiet but I think completely deliberate and beautifully composed three-beat. 
What it doesn't do for me personally is meaningfully improve the end of the uh, the end of the two towers. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy this part of the story. I absolutely enjoy this part of the story. But as a structural division, it is for me the weakest ending of any of the six books of The Lord of the Rings. More on that, I suppose, when we move into The Return of the King and we get to look at the back half of the sequence and we get to see why the breaking point was drawn where it was drawn, why we end the two towers here rather than at the end of the next scene that we get between Frodo and Sam, which would be arguably more resonant, arguably more powerful. We'll talk about that when we get to it. That, you guys, takes us to the end of The Two Towers. Let's take some Q&A, shall we? Let's take the Q, in fact, and I will struggle, I will strive to present you all with an A because I have received, no kidding, 20, 25 variations on this particular question over the course of the last couple of weeks, and it's always phrased in very polite terms, but... It can ultimately be distilled down to a very simple question. But seriously, what's up with the ring? Seriously, what is going on? Yes, okay, we can talk about the influence of the ring on Boromir, and we can talk about Tom Bombadil holding it up, and it's all probably fine. But really, though, what is up with the ring? And if we're going to talk about the ring, we should talk first about the timeline of the ring Let's talk about the history. I've actually prepared a quick uh, a quick timeline here for you, going back almost 5,000 years into the history of Tolkien's Legendarium. So, the ring. In 1500 of the Second Age, that's 4,900 years before the events of the Lord of the Rings proper, the Elves of Eregion begin forging the Rings of Power. We're going to talk about why they forge the Rings of Power in just a few minutes. In 1600 of the Second Age, the One Ring is forged by Sauron in secret at Rodruin, Sa- at at Mount Doom. Sauron seizes all of the other rings. He demands all of the other rings, save for the three, the three elvish rings which are concealed. In 1700 of the Second Age, the War of Elves and Sauron ends. This is the war that is, uh, the war that Sauron unleashes upon the elves. What happens is, that Sauron goes to the elves of Eregion in disguise. He goes disguised as Anatar, the Lord of Gifts. And there they craft the rings. Nine for men, seven for dwarves, and the three for elves. Though, actually, the nine and the seven are not different rings, right? They don't craft a set of nine rings and then a set of seven rings. They just craft 16 rings, right? So when we're talking about the great rings of power, we should talk about the one and the three and the 16. The difference between the dwarf rings and the rings for man is what happens when you give the ring of power to a dwarf or a man. If you took one of the rings from the Nazgul and gave it, I guess... I guess the Nazgul aren't still at this point bearing the rings, right? We established that. That's, it's deep and contradictory in the Legendarium, but I'm pretty sure that that is the case at this point in history. But if you take one of the rings of man and you give it to a dwarf, it is a dwarven ring. It does what the dwarven rings do. There doesn't seem to be any specificity in their design here. And we'll talk, as I say, why about why they were created in just a minute. So Sauron then slips away from Eregion and uh, crafts the One Ring in secret. Celebrimbor figures it out. He feels the influence of the One Ring. Sauron demands all of the other rings and they are given to him except for the three elven rings. And Sauron launches the all-out assault on Eregion. He is ultimately beaten back in 1700 of the Second Age by a giant force, by, by a mighty military host dispatched from Numenor and their allies, the elves. This is the, the War of Elves and Sauron, sometimes known as the Invasion of Eriador. Everything is pretty quiet for about 1,500 years. Then in the year 3261 of the Second Age, Arpharazon, king of Numenor, invades Middle-earth with a, the most titanic army, the... 
I suppose, second biggest Numenorean army that we'll ever see, in fact, and he invades Middle-earth and captures Sauron. This does not work out quite the way that he wants, because he takes Sauron as a prisoner back to Numenor, but uh-oh, Sauron has pulled a Joker, or a Loki, or the Wookiee prisoner gambit, right? Like, he has has feigned to surrender himself to Arpharazon and to the Numenorians, and he has surrendered on purpose. He has taken back to Numenor. He uses the ring to corrupt Numenor, particularly to corrupt Arpharazon, whom he goads into launching an assault on Valinor, leading to the cracking of the earth and the sinking of Numenor. This happens in 3319 of the Second Age. Then, everything is quiet for a little bit. Sauron's body, by the way, when the world is cracked and made round, when um, when the undying lands are, are plucked from the surface of, of uh, Arda and, and taken off into their, into fairy, effectively, when Numenor sinks beneath the waves, Sauron's body is actually destroyed, but his spirit, bearing the ring, flees back to Mordor. How does his spirit carry the ring? He's Sauron, he's pretty powerful, but that is textually what happens. So he flies back to Mordor with the ring, disembodied, and then he just hangs out for about a hundred years, pretty much a hundred years, until the War of the Last Alliance, where ultimately he is killed again, quote-unquote killed again, by Isildur, who takes the ring. You'll see here in uh, 3441 of the Second Age, Isildur cuts the One Ring from Sauron's hand using the shards of his father's sword, Narsil. This is the end of the Second Age. Isildur takes up the ring, Isildur's bane, and wears it for two years until the disaster at the Gladden Fields. In the year two of the Third Age, Isildur falls, the One Ring sinks into the Anduin and is lost. A thousand years later, in 1050 of the Third Age, Sauron returns. He makes his home at Dol Guldur. He's turning, at this point, Greenwood the Great, previously a bastion of the Old Forest. He turns Greenwood the Great into Mirkwood because of the influence of his spreading corruption going forth from Dol Guldur. In 2063, almost a thousand years later, he flees from Dol Guldur rather than be discovered by Gandalf, who is curious about Dol Guldur at this point. He goes into hiding, his whereabouts completely unknown. Then he returns to Dol Guldur again in 2460. 60 of the Third Age. Why am I mentioning all of this stuff about Sauron when he doesn't even have the ring, when the ring for this entire period is lying in the silt at the bottom of the Anduin? Because there's a curious synchronicity in these dates. In 2460, Sauron returns to Dol Guldur. In 2463, after two and a half thousand years, the One Ring is found by Smeagol. Well, technically the One Ring is found by Deagol, who is then immediately killed by Smeagol, and he becomes the new ring bearer. He then hangs out under the Misty Mountains for 500 years until the ring slips from his possession and is taken up by one Bilbo Baggins of Bag End in 2941 of the Third Age. Then in 3001 of the Third Age, Bilbo passes the One Ring on to Frodo, and in 3018, Frodo leaves the Shire carrying the One Ring. The events that we are currently reading about are taking place early in 3019 of the Third Age. That brings us up to the present day. This is the history of the ring. It was created by Sauron, it was born by Sauron, it was taken from Sauron by Isildur, who lost it two years later, who was, according to some, betrayed by it. Two years later, we're going to look a little bit at how Isildur interacts with the ring. I'm actually going to break one of the uh, unwritten rules here at there and back again and use a quote from the Unfinished Tales to talk a little about what happens at the disaster at the Gladden Fields in just a moment. So Isildur loses the ring, it hangs out at the bottom of the Anduin for two and a half thousand years, is taken up by Smeagol, lives under the Misty Mountains for another 500 years because after two and a half thousand years at the bottom of a river, 500 years in a cave beneath the Misty Mountains doesn't sound so bad. Then Bilbo 
then Frodo, that brings us up to the present day, and Sam, Samwise Gamgee, now a ring bearer. There is an interesting specificity, in fact, in Tolkien's writing that only Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam are referred to as ring bearers. The other people who bore the ring bore the ring, but they are not, in whatever mythical or metaphorical sense we want to view the word ring bearer, they are not, capital R, ring bearers, right? This is a different thing. The hobbits are slightly different. So, that's the history of the ring from its origin back in, uh, back in 1600 of the Second Age, 4,800 years before the present, all the way up to Sam's finger as he crashes into the doors here pursuing Frodo's previously thought dead, now thought alive body. But what is the ring for? In order to ask what the One Ring is for, I think we have to ask what the rings of power in general are for, and for that... We have to also break that unwritten rule, and we have to quote from the Silmarillion. This is from the Silmarillion. This is from um, On the Rings of Power in the Third Age. This is the last section of the Silmarillion. This is about Sauron, of course, going forth into the world. Man, he found the easiest to sway of all the peoples of the earth, but long he sought to persuade the elves to his service, for he knew that the firstborn had the greater power, and he went far and wide among them, and his hue was still that of one both fair and wise. Only to Linden he did not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair seeming, and though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him to that land. But elsewhere the elves received him gladly, and few among them hearkened to the messengers from Linden bidding them beware, for Sauron took to himself the name of Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, and they had at first much profit from his friendship, and he said to them, Alas, for the weakness of the great! For a mighty king is Gilgalad, and wise in all lore is Master Elrond, and yet they will not aid me in my labours. Can it be that they do not desire to see other lands become as blissful as their own? But wherefore should Middle-earth remain forever desolate and dark, whereas the elves could make it as fair as Erisea, nay, even as Valinor? And since you have not returned thither, as you might, I perceive that you love this Middle-earth, as do I. Is it not then our task to labor together for its enrichment, and for the raising of all the elven kindreds that wander here untaught to the height of that power and knowledge which those, which those, have, who, which those have who are beyond the sea? Excuse me to the height of that power and knowledge which those have who are beyond the sea. It was in Eregion that the councils of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. Moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts, since they had refused to return into the West, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those who had departed. Therefore they hearkened to Sauron, and they learned of him many things, for his knowledge was great. In those days the smiths of Ostenethel surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and they made rings of power. But Sauron guided their labours, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and bring them under his vigilance. So at this point in history, Sauron is moving through the world, cloaked in a fair-seeming guise. He seems, his is, hue is still that of one both fair and wise. Only to Linden does he not come. Linden is the, uh, is the country of Gilgalad. It's on the western shore. It's to the west of the Shire. It's where the Grey Havens is. That is the former kingdom of Gilgalad, all the way out there on the shore. Only to Linden did he not come, for Gilgalad and Elrond doubted him and his fair-seeming. Though they knew not who in truth he was, they would not admit him to that land. So Gilgalad and Elrond, there's something weird about that Anatar guy, though, right? Yeah, no, there's something really weird about that Anatar. We shouldn't let him in. I, I don't think we should let him No, we definitely shouldn't let him in. And also, let us send forth messengers just to warn people to chill out, just to say, hey, that Anatar guy, maybe just don't. Maybe just don't, like, give him your credit card number or maybe don't, like, leave him with your phone or anything like that. He's, he's a shady dude, is what we're saying. 
But that doesn't matter because he doesn't go to Linden. Instead, he goes to Eregion. And he says to them, Alas for the weakness of the great, for a mighty king is Gilgalad, and wise in all lore is Master Elrond, and yet they will not aid me in my labors. Yeah, I went to Linden, and they said, No, they, they won't help me do this thing which I want to do more than anything else. Like you, who have chosen not to depart from Middle-earth and return to the Undying Lands, you have chosen to stay here. You have tarried here a while. And like you, I love Middle-earth but I'd love it more if it were better. I would love it more if it was like Tol Arisea, if it were more like Valinor. Why should we not use our power, our art, our craft to make the world a better place? Surely we should do that, right? I can help you. We can make this thing happen. It's going to be great. In Irangian, the councils of Sauron were most gladly received, for in that land the Noldor desired ever to increase the skill and subtlety of their works. Okay, so the Noldor of Irangian, the elves of Irangian, love their craft. They want to create things of beauty, and they want to get better at creating things of beauty and of power. Moreover, they were not at peace in their hearts, since they had refused to return into the West, and they desired both to stay in Middle-earth, which indeed they loved, and yet to enjoy the bliss of those that had departed. Well, we could go back to Valinor, where it's, you know, idyllic forever, and we're happy, but we love Middle-earth, we want to be here, but it wouldn't hurt if it was more like Valinor, like, it could be somewhere halfway between, we could make it better than it is, I mean, have you seen some of these places? They're not great, like, not awesome, have you, have you been down to, like, Rohan? There's nothing there, there's just, like, 400 miles of, of grassland, and not even any people living there yet, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty boring, so, uh, yeah, actually, we would like to use our skills, Anatar, Lord of Gifts, Lord of Gifts, it's a great name, by the way, come give us your gifts, come give us your gifts, teach us how to make awesome things, so that we can make the world better. In those days, the smiths of Austin Ethel surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and they made rings of power. Under the influence of Anatar, under the influence of Sauron, they craft the rings of power to improve Middle-earth, to preserve and to beautify and to bring life and vibrancy to Middle-earth itself. These rings, the creation of these rings by the smiths of Eregion are well-intentioned. Ostenethil, by the way, is um, is basically Holon. It's that southeastern part of Eregion. It's the ruin that the Fellowship pass right before they get to the gates of Moria. It's it's the elven kingdom to the west of, of Khazadum there. So we're, we're kind of roughly familiar with that too. But that is where the rings of power were crafted, save for the one ring. And it's a little ambiguous whether the elven smiths there, the, the Noldor smiths there, crafted innumerable rings of power or just the great rings, right? Because we've drawn that distinction before. Gandalf has observed that distinction before. No, there are many rings of power in the world. Like, whatever. There's a ring that makes your hand glow pink. Like, cool. I don't know why anyone would want that, but maybe someone wanted it. Maybe it was like a first-year test for a blacksmith of Eregion, for a, a, a jewelry crafter of Eregion. I don't know. But there are innumerable rings of power, but there are also great rings. They craft the great rings there. So they craft these great rings in order to preserve Middle-earth, in order to make Middle-earth better, to make it stronger. And we can absolutely see that elven impulse because even at this time, right, this is, this is post so much disaster and darkness, post so much war, so much shadow across the face of Middle-earth. The, the world is already beginning that long fade. We are already, in a sense, fighting that long defeat that Galadriel talks about in Lothlorien. The world is slipping closer and closer to darkness, and we can stop that. We can preserve things. And that is one of the elements that is most powerfully associated with the Rings of Power, the ability to 
preserve, the ability to maintain. This is true also of the Elven Rings, right? This is why Galadriel is capable of wielding Nenya to preserve Lothlorien, because the ring allows you to create and to preserve. But then we get the One Ring. So if this is the purpose of the other rings of power, what is the One Ring for? Well, actually, we have a very easy rhyme that tells us what the One Ring is for. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. This is the... Inscription crafted by an unknown elven loremaster, right? This is the rhyme composed by an unknown elven loremaster that contains embedded within it the inscription on the One Ring, which was spoken aloud by Sauron at the moment of its crafting. That's why we get that brilliant shift in meter as we move through this, this poem. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. We're getting this like... Almost elven, actually. It, it almost feels like the elven poetry that we get in the rest of the Lord of the Rings, like that 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 elven meter. It has that sense to it. But then we get that hard turn because we go strictly into this this regular, this punchy, this creepy, this this drumbeat meter as we move into the the most famous two lines: one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. See how we come into that new meter and then out of that new meter? This is a hybrid poem in its original conception. It's it's so often overlooked and yet so powerful. And it is because it is so often overlooked, in fact, that we're looking at it right now. Hey, what is the One Ring for? What does the One Ring do? It gives us mastery. It gives us dominion. It makes us invisible, which is pretty cool, let me tell you. It is tempting to think, particularly those of us who have read the Lord of the Rings more carefully and actually given some thought to the purpose of the One Ring. Why is the One Ring the key to defeating Sauron forever? Because he has invested so much of his power in the creation of the One Ring. It carries this large proportion of Sauron's entire power base, right? It is it is emblematic of, of much, uh, not just emblematic, but actually is the embodiment of much of his power. But it's crucial for those of us here in 2018 not to think of the Ring of Power as a horcrux. The Ring of Power has not been invested with Sauron's soul. It is not a fragment of Sauron that is contained within it. There is nothing like that. There is nothing like the fragmentation of soul in all of the Lord of the Rings. This is not a part of Tolkien's legendarium at all. There's nothing that asserts that actually the Ring is like a little mini-me Sauron. No. There's no hint of that anywhere. The power that has been invested is just manifest power. It is just raw power. It is raw potential. It is raw will, if you like. But it is not a fraction of Sauron himself. Like, his identity is not diminished. His power is diminished in the creation of the ring. So what is the ring for. He's not just creating this, this phylactery. He's not just creating this, this safe fragment of his soul so that if something happens to his physical body, like, I don't know, there's some kind of last alliance of men and elves and they come at him with a big sword. It's not that. He's doing something much more specific. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. What is the one ring for? 
The One Ring exists expressly to rule, to find, to bring, and to bind. That is the purpose behind the creation of the One Ring. And when we're talking about the ruling and the finding and the bringing and the binding, I don't think that we are necessarily talking about the lesser rings. I don't think that we're talking about the three or the seven or the nine or the three and the 16, however that works out, right? I, I don't think that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the rings themselves. We're talking about the bearers of the rings. This ring is created to bring the other ring bearers to Mordor, to, to the, the, uh, the Dark Lord on his dark throne, there to rule them, there to find them, there to bring them, and there to bind them. This is, this is a, a gambit. This is a consolidation move by, by Sauron here. He invests his power into the One Ring, knowing that the other bearers of the rings will then be brought to him and brought under his power, which, by the way, they absolutely are. Sauron's plan here works. He never gets the Three Rings. The Three Rings remain untouched by his corruption. But the seven that go out to the Dwarf Lords, well, okay, the Dwarves are actually resistant to the influence of the Ring, possibly because of their origin story, possibly because they were created of the, the Earth and the Stone by Aule, because they're not entirely... They're not entirely alive. They're not quite children of Iluvatar in the way that the other races are children of Iluvatar. But the men, the men fall under the spell of the rings all but immediately. Nine great kings doomed to die end up working for the Dark Tower. They end up working for Sauron directly. The ring actually accomplishes its purpose. So why is the ring so important now? Well, because it is still that significant fraction of Sauron's power, I think. Because the ruling of... The Nazgul, there is no sense in the Lord of the Rings that the Nazgul are not under Sauron's direct dominion, right? They have already fallen. They have already been corrupted. He doesn't need the One Ring in order to, you know, as a remote control to, to keep tabs on the Nazgul or to tell them where to go or what to do or when to fight. He doesn't need that. They are on board with Team Sauron. They've got the little jerseys. They've got the little hats. They're ready to go. But he needs it to to bind them, to bring them closer together, to manifest his power more fully so that he can achieve the great goals that he has set out for himself. I should say too, at this point, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, oh, this is interesting. We're talking about, um, we're talking about this reference here. Uh, yes, JY says though the concept of a Horcrux may have been inspired by the One Ring. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, osmotically, like like pop culturally, yes, possibly, possibly. JKR uh, JK Rowling has said previously that she has not read the Lord of the Rings, that she was not inspired by the Lord of the Rings in the creation of the Harry Potter series, that Dumbledore is in no way a Gandalf figure, and that I think is entirely possible, right? It is entirely possible from the perspective of someone who was writing in the early 1990s, to be so thoroughly influenced by the Lord of the Rings that in some sense, you don't have to have read it. You don't have to have sat down and cracked open and, you know, even started with in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, right? You don't have to have that experience of, of, uh, of Professor Tolkien's work in order to have absorbed osmotically Professor Tolkien's work. And I, I tend to believe J.K. Rowling when she says that that is in fact the case, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't an influence on her work. Okay. Let's see here. Gosh, I'm running so late. I cannot believe it's already 10 o'clock. We may not have other questions. All right. I wanted to kind of pause here in our discussion to observe something very important and something that we absolutely have to bear in mind because it is a good guiding principle when you're analyzing works of this sort, works of this depth, works of this complexity, and works which are, even in their fullness, incomplete. Professor Tolkien never finished his Legendarium. He didn't finish the entire history of Arda. He strove to, 
but partly because of the constraints of his, his academic work and partly because he was just a perfectionist, rather than continuing the story of Arda, rather than going off and writing new stories, he would habitually, throughout his entire career, go back to the beginning and start rewriting everything again. No, rather than telling the story of what happens to Aragorn in the years to come or what happened for that, that you know, 400-year period, 500-year period when, when Sauron was just missing, was just MIA after fleeing Dol Guldur uh, from the uh, threat of Gandalf, what happened in that period? We don't know, because actually what I'm going to go back is I'm going to go back and rewrite Baron and Luthien again. I, I want to go back and perfect Baron and Luthien. I'm going to write it in some new and even more abstract and arcane meter, right? That was his passion. That was his love. And that is why we have such beautiful revision, not just to The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, of course, but to all of Professor Tolkien's work. That's why we have a 12-volume series entitled The History of Middle-Earth, you guys. That's why that series exists, because Christopher Tolkien has done some fantastic academic work on his father's magnificent and abundant legacy. Not abundant in the number of finished stories, but absolutely abundant in terms of, of sheer volume and output and careful thought. So, Professor Tolkien writes to Rona Bear in, um, oh, I didn't actually write down the year. Oh, this is terrible. I'm sorry. If, if you have the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien uh, on your desk there, you can look this up. This is letter 211. He writes to Rona Bear, you cannot press the one ring too hard, for it is, of course, a mythical feature, even though the world of the tales is conceived in more or less historical terms. The one ring is mythic. It's magic. We don't understand how the one ring works in much the same way as we don't understand how sorcery works. How does Gandalf cast a spell? Like, think of the very few examples we see in the entire book of, of Gandalf actually casting a spell. How does magic work? We don't know. How does power work? How does Sauron's power, like, actually work? How does the shadow falling across Middle-earth actually work? Why are... Why is the presence of elves sufficient to, to lift the spirits and preserve goodness in the world? Tolkien carefully, painstakingly, refused to define his magic, to define the mythic and, and mystical underpinnings of his world in scientific terms. He refused to pin this stuff down. Another point of contrast here between Professor Tolkien and J.K. Rowling, who actually delights in the natural philosopher approach to magic. Now, spell A is spell A. Spell B is spell B. This is inspired in part by, you know, the, the codification of fantasy fiction in the aftermath of J.R.R. Tolkien's work by creators like Gary Gygax, who sat down and wrote D&D, based in large part off the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, right? The idea that a mage has four level one spells, three level two spells, and one level three spell per day. He has to have an eight-hour rest before he can cast those spells again. He learns them from a spell book, and as he casts them, they disappear from his memory. That's why spell power is limited in the world of D&D. No, there's none of that in the work of Tolkien. This is a mythical element. It is a mythical feature, and so we can't really determine exactly what the ring is. It is going to resist our attempts to, to interrogate it, I suppose. That said, Let's interrogate it. Let's figure out what the ring actually is and how it does what it does. What do we know for sure? Let, let's collect our data points here. What do we know for absolute sure? What do we know for cast iron fact in the pages of The Lord of the Rings? Surprisingly, we know, I think, two things. We know that the ring makes the bearer invisible. And we know that the ring can change its size and weight from time to time. That is it. That is all that we actually know. I guess we know from Sam here toward the end of the story that it shifts your sense when you are wearing it, that it makes the world more opaque, but makes your other senses more keen, I suppose. We can now tag that as a data point too, because we get that in first person perspective from Sam. So, okay, let's add that in as a data point as well. Where does that get us? Well, 
that's not all, of course. Gandalf suggests, or suspects, more. This is a quote from, uh, from the oft-mentioned Chapter 2 of The Lord of the Rings, The Shadow of the Past. Quote, A ring of power looks after itself, Frodo. It may slip off treacherously, but its keeper never abandons it. At most, he plays with the idea of handing it on to someone else's care, and that only at an early stage when it first begins to grip. But as far as I know, Bilbo alone in history has ever gone beyond playing and really done it. He needed all my help, too. And even so, he would never have just forsaken it or cast it aside. It was not Gollum, Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. Gandalf seems awfully sure about the power of the ring, bearing in mind that he has a sample size of one and a half. At this point, he has a sample size of Bilbo and mm, Gollum, but he can never be really sure what Gollum is telling the truth about, what Gollum is lying about, what Gollum is concealing for his own purposes. He can't be completely certain, not even if you put the fear of fire into him, but he's certainly sure about this. It was not Gollum Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. The ring left him. And this is one of those elements in The Lord of the Rings which I think readers are keyed to anticipate, keyed to read as significant, and which readers tend to run with. The ring did it. The ring is conscious. The ring is alive. The ring has a master plan. The ring is the greatest mastermind in all of Middle-earth. And that may be true. But when we think about what we've actually seen from the ring, I'm not sure that it completely holds up to scrutiny. When we're talking about the ring as a personality, when we're talking about the ring as a being unto itself, as, a, as a, uh, a thing that is possessed of awareness and agency, then again, it's helpful for us to differentiate here between sapience and sentience, right? Can it sense the world around it? Is it sentient? Yes. Yes. I think we can be pretty sure that that is the case. It is sentient in some way to some degree. That seems to be the case. Or it is, arguably, leeching off of the sentience of its bearer. That might also be true. Is the ring sapient? Can the ring argue? Does the ring have a sense of its own purpose? Does the ring, is the ring able to formulate plans? Is the ring able to take action? Well, we, in our eagerness to credit the ring with that power interpret many passages in the book in exactly that way, right? We look at the temptation of Boromir, for example. We look at these moments of interaction. We look at the hold that it has over Gollum. We look at Frodo falling under the corruptive influence of the ring, and we credit a lot of that to the ring. But it is possible that we credit too much of that to the ring. We know about Gollum, and we know about Bilbo, and we know about Frodo, and we know that the ring has no power over Tom Bombadil. We know that Gandalf and Elrond and Galadriel all refuse the ring. We know that Boromir wanted it, that Faramir would not pick it up if he found it by the highway. Not even Gandalf, who is arguably the most powerful figure that we see interact with the ring on an ongoing basis, is able to avoid the temptation of the ring. We get the, uh, the line from here. I should have put this on the slide, but didn't. We get this line from Gandalf. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me, I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. Galadriel, as we know, resists it for very similar reasons. All shall love me and despair. Yeah, I've thought a long time about taking the ring, and if I had it, I would do 
terrible things with the best of intentions. I would do terrible things in the name of goodness and light and beauty and all would love me and despair. This seems to be a consistent response from members of the White Council in particular to the ring. But how do they know? None of them has borne it. The data points for the actual bearing of the ring are Gollum, who lived under the Misty Mountains for 500 years, eating fish and occasionally goblins, and would, for all intents and purposes, have remained there until the end of time, and Bilbo, who lived happily in the Shire and was actually kind of beloved by his community, who started to fall into it, who didn't age, certainly, but who exhibited almost no evil traits at all. What are our actual data points for our speculation about the ring? We don't know. Presumably Sauron wasn't that transformed by it, right? So there's one person who bore the ring who's in a slightly different category. There's one person who bore the ring who had a slightly different relationship with it, and that, of course, is Isildur. And this slide comes from the Unfinished Tales. This comes from the chapter of the Unfinished Tales called The Disaster of the Gladden Fields. This is after, uh, two years after the Battle of the Last Alliance, two years after Isildur has taken the reign, two years after his father Elendil has been killed. He is now traveling uh, near the Anduin, uh, near the Gladden Fields, when he is fallen upon by a host of orcs here in the company of his son. There was a pause, though the most keen-eyed among the Dúnedain said that the orcs were moving inwards, stealthily, step by step. Elendor went to his father, who was standing dark and alone, as if lost in thought. Atarinya, he said, what of the power that would cow these foul creatures and command them to obey you? Is it then of no avail? Alas, it is not, Senya. I cannot use it. I dread the pain of touching it, and I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. It needs one greater than I now know myself to be. My pride has fallen. It should go to the keepers of the three. This is pretty much the last interaction between father and son before Isildur dies. Before he flees, he puts on the ring with a, with a cry of pain, as it's credited in The Unfinished Tales. He puts on the ring with a cry of pain and flees into the Anduin, where the ring slips from his finger. He is revealed and killed by orc arrows, and that is the end of Isildur. Oh, uh, to call out here, Atarinya is uh, my father. That's the direct translation. And we don't actually have a translation of Senya. This is not actually attested anywhere else in Tolkien's Legendarium. We don't know what this word means, except that it probably means in context, son or my son. That's probably, uh, like, logically, that's what it means. But we actually have no idea what, what Senya means or what Tolkien intended there. So look at this carefully. Elendor went to his father who was standing dark and alone as if lost in thought. So the orcs are coming. They are silent, but the sharp-eyed Dunedain, they're all Dunedain at this point, right? The sharp-eyed Dunedain can hear and, and see and feel the orcs approaching stealthily, step by step. Elendor goes to his father who's standing dark and alone. Atarinya, he says, what of the power that would cow these foul creatures and command them to obey you? Is it then of no avail? Hey, Elendor, how do you know about the ring? How do you know about the power of the ring? How do you know about the use of the ring? The ring has never left Sauron's finger until two years ago when your dad chopped it off with the shards of Narsil. How do you know what it's used for? And again, we've got to look here at the fictional frame surrounding this story. Who wrote the story and when and why and what was their intent, right? We can ask all of those questions very fairly, but at least within the fictional frame here, Elendor knows the power of the ring. And Isildur responds, alas, it is not, Senya, I cannot use it. I dread the pain of touching it, and I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. I cannot use it. First thought. I dread the pain of touching it. I read those as two distinct thoughts. I can't use it. A, I dread the pain of touching it. B, I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. Remember what Galadriel says to Frodo when Frodo says, okay, so I've got the best ring. How come I can't sense the other rings? How come I can't, I don't know, do magic tricks? How come I can't cast a magic missile at fourth level three times a day? 
And Galadriel says, well, you can use the ring to do those things. You can use the ring to dominate others, but you have to turn your will to it. You have to lean into that. And that's a thing that you haven't done. And then, of course, in the Two Towers, we've seen Frodo do exactly that with Gollum. We had the the extracting of the original promise and then the interactions in Ithilien, too, at the, at the Forbidden Pool in Ithilien. So we've seen Frodo kind of slip down this slope a little bit now. But Isildur couldn't or didn't, I have not yet found the strength to bend it to my will. It needs one greater than I now know myself to be. My pride has fallen. It should go to the keepers of the three. If the ring is interested in belonging to the most powerful person, why wouldn't it want to stay with Isildur? Well, possibly because Isildur doesn't use it or doesn't want to use it or can't use it. It may be that Isildur is simply too good, that he cannot bend his will to this purpose, that he cannot seek to dominate sufficiently that the ring will respond to his command. And it is, I think, well, hmm, it is potentially a coincidence, right? It is potentially a coincidence that Sauron returns to Dol Guldur in the guise of, of the necromancer and three years later, after 2,500 years, three years later, the ring is found in the Anduin by Deagle, right? That, that's, yeah, possibly a coincidence, but also possibly not. The ring slipping from the finger of Isildur leading to his death after Isildur tells his son, I'm done, actually, with the ring. I can't use it. It should go to the three. The keepers of the three, he's talking, of course, about Elrond and uh, Elrond and Galadriel. And I guess uh, Celebrimbor still has, the, uh, still has the other ring at that point because he has yet to give it to Gandalf. Gandalf is not yet in Middle-earth. It's possible, right? It's possible that this is the case. We just don't have enough information to be absolutely sure. So what is up with the ring? What can we say with absolute certainty about the ring? He asked rhetorically as he was approaching the end of this podcast. I can't believe I've spent so much time talking about this. Thank you all so much for indulging me. What do we know for sure about the ring? Well, what I find most interesting about the ring is that the ring plays consistently, not toward fantasies of power, but actually toward fear. The ring offers glory, it would seem, to those who seek it. Boromir certainly thinks of taking the ring as a as an heroic act, as, as something that will bring him glory, but most importantly will bring him salvation, will bring him comfort, will bring him security. It will end the war. He will be safe there, a great lord of Minas Tirith. When Frodo's thinking of using the ring back in the Shire, it is safety that the ring suggests to him. No, it's all right. Put on the ring and then you'll be fine. When he's on Weathertop, it suggests put on the ring and you'll be fine. It has no power over Tom Bombadil, perhaps, because Tom Bombadil has no fear. Because Tom Bombadil doesn't fear anything in the world. Why would he? He is master. I'm interested in what you guys think about the ring. I guess what I'll do here is... um is open this up here. Uh, Kierden, Kierden the Shipwright. Thank you, Variag of Khan. I, I hesitated there over who had the third ring at this point. But yes, Kierden the Shipwright has the third ring at this point. Good job. Um, yes. Uh, Shane asking, is the pain physical or is it the kind of pain that, that changing into something that you know will, uh, that you know will destroy you? It, it could be. Um, there is the actual gasp of pain as he puts it on, which I find interesting. Like, uh, I dread the pain of touching it. It's not even the touching it that is the problem for Isildur right now in this moment. It is the dread of touching it. It is in some sense the fear of touching it. Is the ring leveraging that fear too? I don't know. All of this is to say that 
my suspicion on deeper thought, I'm, I'm happy to build this house of cards of speculation regarding the ring. I am happy to look at the influence of the ring on Boromir, both you know from, from the Council of Elrond all the way to Parth Galen, right? I, I think we've seen these interactions again and again, and I, I, I love how we, have, how we have built this narrative of what the ring is doing to Boromir. But we might suggest, too, that this isn't coming from the ring, that this is just coming from Boromir, that all of this rationalization, all of this this reasonable chain of, of, of explanations and, and excuses that these things are coming from inside the either ring bearer or the person who wants the ring. When Frodo's in the Shire and he's thinking, well, Bilbo used the ring all the time and I'm not terribly far and, and Gandalf would never know and it'd all be fine. Like, when he's using the ring, when he's using the ring facing the Barrowites and he's picturing himself running across the open green space, you know, grieving for his lost friends, but safe and alive under the sun back out on the green grass. Right? Is that coming from the ring? Or is this just representative of that fundamental instinct within all of us to seek safety and to seek comfort? Is the ring forcing the rationalization or is the rationalization just a natural product of imperfect souls in the presence of a great power? Well, your mileage may vary. And ultimately, because this is a mythic thing, because this is a mythic artifact, we're never going to be absolutely sure of what the ring intends. We are going to have one really powerful further data point in our exploration of the ring when we move into the return of the king, when we see the ring... Actually, I'm going to say actually, leveraging its, its, its great intent upon Samwise Gamgee. It has not yet begun. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that I think that the, the, the passages that we discussed in last week's session, looking at this internal division in Sam, like, is he under the influence of the ring? Is that the ring that wants him to go on? Does the ring want him to take the ring from Frodo and push on toward Mount Doom? Is this all part of the ring's plan? And I don't think that it is. Because... If we wrote a version of that scene that was in accord with the other scenes which we credit to the influence of the ring, the ring would not say, there's no damn hope, take the ring and go on anyway. The ring would say, you have to push on. Frodo would have wanted you to push on. And the only way to be safe, the only way to be sure is to be invisible. Take the ring, Sam. You're safer with it. Take the ring, Sam. Frodo would have wanted you to have it. We don't get that. We get this other voice instead. We get this nebulous voice of, of Yukatash. We actually had two separate emails this week from listeners, uh, one of which came from Vicky, and I'm afraid that I forget I didn't write down who sent the other email. Uh, Matt, possibly. Uh, but I had two separate emails this week, both believing that the other voice in that dialogue with Sam was Galadriel's, that we are supposed to read that as Galadriel's. And... I think it was Vicky actually looked at the uh, looked at the form and the meter and the tone of the the words that the voice uses before the voice breaks back into Sam's own natural idiom, right? Before the voice descends from its elevated position, there is a certain resonance there with with the way that Galadriel speaks back in Lothlorien. I love that explanation. I, I'm a big fan of that explanation. The text doesn't offer us a definitive perspective on it, but I like it nonetheless. And it is true, I think, of what we know of magic in in Middle Earth at this time. You know. It, it's not unlike Gandalf reaching out to uh, to Frodo when he's on Amenhand, caught between the voice and the lidless eye there. All right. I fear that at the end of this extended discussion of the ring, we are no closer to an understanding of the ring. And that is, I think, the point. We want to understand it. 
More than wanting to understand it, we have been taught by modern fantasy, by those writers who came along in the wake of Professor Tolkien, that we ought to be able to understand it. That a sufficiently skilled and acute reader will be able to, to sift through all the details that we get in the course of the story and build an accurate and comprehensive picture of the ring just as you can do with the invisibility cloak in, in Rowling's Harry Potter series, just as you can do with God, any magical artifact in any magical series that you want to, to mention, right? Magical artifacts are there to be understood because spell A is spell A and spell B is spell B, and that is how magic works. But that is never, never how magic works in, in the world of Middle-earth. That's true of the spells. Most recently, I've been thinking a lot about the staves that Faramir gives to Frodo and Sam when they depart from the Garden of Athelion, right? And we talked about the, uh, the, the blessing that had been laid upon them, the, this, this enchantment that had been wrought possibly by Faramir, right? It, it's absolutely ambiguous in the text because in a sense, these staves have been crafted twice. Are they crafted by Faramir when he has them, you know, cut down to hobbit size and reshod, or are they crafted originally for the men of Gondor to carry with them in Athelion? Either of those things may be true. We don't know who laid the blessing upon it, but the fact that a blessing has been laid upon it, that is a kind of magic. We've had the evocations of, of Elbereth, right? We've had the, 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 the prayers to Varda, basically very recently in our reading here, that work like magic. We've got the file of starlight. We've got the, the, the uh, file of the light of Arendel here. That is magic, but we never understand exactly how it works. Tolkien refuses to to pin down, to codify, and thereby reduce the wonder of his magical system. So all of this is to urge you all, as we're reading through The Return of the King, as you're reading The Lord of the Rings again in the future, as you're reading The Hobbit again in the future, not to get too hung up on the mechanism of the ring. It is mythical. It is magical. And it is indefinable in that way. We can speculate, of course, but we must be sure and certain that our speculation is just that, that we are not necessarily distilling a greater truth, distilling the quote-unquote right answer from the book. We are building a possible right answer. We are building a possible, not even a platform, but, but a framework to better understand the ring. And that framework has to exist alongside the other perceptual frameworks that we construct in order to understand the deepest parts of the story, in order to understand light and dark and good and evil and age and wisdom, right? I'm giving you opposed pairs and then age and wisdom, these two things oftentimes go together, and, and goodness and virtue and the great and the small, right? There are so many perceptual frameworks that we have to build to properly understand the Lord of the Rings that our understanding of the ring itself is just another one alongside many. That's my approach to talking about the ring. So when I'm a little ambiguous about my verdict on the ring, when I'm a little loose about what exactly is happening and I say things like, well, it's possible that the ring is influencing Frodo at this point, or do you take this to mean that the, the ring is influencing Sam, or is Boromir really to, to blame for the temptation at Parthgal? These are open questions, but they are open questions within the frame of the book. This is not a faltering of our analytical acuity here. This is a recognition of the inherent and innate and indivisible complexity at the heart of this sprawling and magnificent piece of fiction. You guys, I have like five minutes left. Let's take some questions here, shall we? There are seven questions in the question box. Let's see what we can do to get through it. First question from Rayla Lynn. When do you think Frodo got it in his head that he wouldn't survive the journey? Do you think the ring influenced his morbid thoughts? Um, <laughs> Perhaps it's just me. Perhaps it's because I am particularly moved by Frodo. Perhaps it's because I recognize his valor. 
But I read that in his line back at the Council of Elrond when he says, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. Like, though I do not know the way has a quality of hopelessness about it, right? Okay, it falls to me. It falls to me, and I'm obviously the one who has to do it. Good luck. Good luck, I guess. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't think I'm going to be successful. Nah, I don't know. Certainly by the time we reach Parth Gallon, as, as we see uh, when he leaves the rest of the fellowship behind, he's already decided by that point. So somewhere between the two, does he believe when he is in Lothlorien? Does he believe? Is it when Gandalf falls? Is that the, the uh, not extinguishing, eclipsing, I suppose, the occluding of a light in Frodo's life? Is that the occluding of a light of hope? Possibly. I'd need to go back and read more carefully, but I, I, I generally read it to be pretty early, right? I generally read it to be pretty early. I think that by the time that he is in Rivendell, by the time that he has faced the Nazgul at Weathertop, by the time that he has taken the wound of the Morgul Blade and he has raced to Rivendell, crossed the Ford of Bruin in there, by the time that he has passed out and then reawoken in the House of Elrond, still afflicted with the wound... Yeah, I think by that point, he's probably got no hope. No hope, at least, that he will return, right? To, to preserve that important distinction that Frodo himself makes. Hope that the quest will succeed. A small, fragile, tenuous hope that the quest will succeed. No hope that he's going to come back. I think that's already in place at that point. He's already talking in terms of this not being a there and back again journey, right? Like, that's, that's not what he's doing. He's aware of that even when he's in Rivendell. So I read that to be pretty early. Do you guys have different answers here? Um, Nikki says, I often think that Frodo's valor is undervalued, especially for those who have only seen the movie. Yes, good Lord. Opening up Frodo. Because Frodo is, in many ways, quite a... Uh, quite a noble gentle hobbit. And he is noble in that English tradition of nobility where he does not unclasp his breast freely. He does not actually spend a lot of time talking about his emotions. He doesn't really get into what the kids these days are calling the feels. He's generally much more restrained than that. And the movie counteracts that, but does so at the cost of his heroism, I think, just a little bit, at the cost of his epic heroic valor, which I think is much more evident in the book, much earlier in the book. And of course, there's just a cost of depicting these things visually, right? It's We get a different Frodo in the movie than we get in the book, but still a good Frodo, still a, still a really solid Frodo, I think. Um, yes, Angela says, I love, though I do not know the way, it says so much concisely. Yeah, I love that too, absolutely. Um, Yes, as C-Star saying, I like scientific magic sometimes within reason, but get bored when Brandon Sanderson fans and such like discuss a magic systems minutia at very great length. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson is. But but again, right, that is part of the intent of Brandon Sanderson in his work. He wants to create a, gosh, not even a... Um, not even a Renaissance or Enlightenment era natural philosopher approach to codifying magic, which is what J.K. Rowling does in the Harry Potter series. He wants to create an entirely modern form of magic, like a modern scientific, reducible, deductible kind of, of, of uh, form of magic, of, of complete taxonomy of magic. I... I'm not against that. Honestly, you guys know I've played my share of D&D. I've played my share of, of Baldur's Gate and Dragon Age games. Like, I'm into a magic system that can be codified and that I can completely understand that is kind of, uh, that is uh, replicable in the way that science is replicable and not generally in the way that magic is replicable. I'm, I'm not against that. But yeah, when you go looking for that in Tolkien, you're going to come up short. And if you go looking for Tolkien's sense of wonder in a lot of modern fantasy stories, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find that specific sense of wonder because... The fashion now is for more codified forms of magic, whether you're talking about Harry Potter or you're talking about, you know, Lev Grossman's series or you're talking about Jim Butcher's series or certainly Brandon Sanderson's series, right? There's a lot of that out there. Um, if you're interested in the sense of wonder, 
I mentioned right at the top of today's show when I was talking about future possible podcast themes and, and, and topics, I mentioned Catherine Kerr's Devery series. If you're interested in it's, it's nothing like Tolkien, right? It is much more mystical and more Celtically inflected and more more vividly representational, I suppose. But I like the magic system in Catherine Kerr's books very much. I, I like the way that she uses, uh, uses Dwayomer in, in the Devery series. I would recommend that. The first, huh, three books, four books? I don't actually remember the breaking point between the first story and the second story there. It's either the... I think the first three books. The first three books are very good. Anyway, I would recommend those. Epic scale, too. Really, really epic scale. Anyway, let's keep going on. I need to answer more questions rather than fewer questions. This question comes from Shane, who says, Orcs seem to think elves play tricks and are cruel. Is killing one of the elves an equally greater good to orcs? Gosh, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Um... I think it's impossible to know. I, I don't think that we get the sense that I don't think we get the sense that orcs are pursuing any kind of, of moral mandate here. I don't think that orcs believe that they are doing good. Orcs believe that they are evil, that they are are bestial and ferocious and wild. And maybe if you were looking at the Urukai, like they have a sense of honor about it, like they have a sense of their superior and elite position, but still they're going on a rampage. They take pleasure in the despoiling. They take pleasure in the corruption. They take pleasure in the darkness and the bloodletting itself. They do believe that elves are tricksy, right? And I can completely understand why they would, because elves are. Elves are. Can you imagine just being an orc in Middle-earth and thinking that I'm hanging out here with like 50 of my buddies. And if one elf shows up, we're actually in serious trouble. Like this, this, this is actually dangerous for us. That would be pretty bad. Like, uh, yeah, I, maybe I'm crediting the orcs with a little too much, you know, self-awareness and, and certainly too much sense of community. But yeah, I don't think that the orcs believe that they are pursuing a greater good. Evil in Middle-earth does not believe that it is pursuing a greater good, right? There's no sense in which, I mean, even Sauron's desire to bring order is a malevolent kind of desire. Sauron is not one of those modern villains who believes that, no, I'm doing good. If you just trusted me, if you just listened to me, if you just went my way, yes, of course, your freedom would be utterly diminished. It would be utterly, you know, ruined upon the rocks of order and uniformity, but that would be better. Wouldn't that be better? There's really no sense of that about Sauron's agenda here. It's just the despoiling. It's the violence and the scourging and the the devastation and the destruction. When we think of evil, we think of evil like Shelob, right? This desire to devour and consume until literally there is nothing left. And even if we did want to build a kind of evil within the frame of the Lord of the Rings, within the frame of Middle-earth in general, if we did want to build a kind of evil that was at least theoretically positive, a kind of evil that was self-deluded enough to believe that it was pursuing a nobler goal, it would still fall apart because evil is innately self-destructive in the world of Tolkien, right? You cannot build if you are evil. And if you are cut off from that light of creation, if you are are incapable of sub-creating in the way that, that the really good people in this world can, yeah. Um, okay. The question from Varig of Khand, right? This is the question I mentioned earlier. Gorbeg mentions the Great Siege. Is this the War of the Last Alliance? If so, is this evidence that orcs might be immortal or at least terribly long-lived? Uh, yes, I take the Great Siege to be the uh, the battle at the Gates of Moranon, the, the, the Battle of Daggerlad, the last battle of the War of the Last Alliance, where Sauron falls and the, the whole thing, right? That is the only thing that would that would be appropriately described as a Great Siege, I think, for the orcs of Barad-dûr. I do not take this to be proof that Shagrat is immortal or or terribly long-lived, right? That was 3,000 years ago. I don't think that Shagrat is 3,000 years old. And certainly, 
in Tolkien's later letters, as he is after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, after he is continually revising this material, trying to figure out how orcs work and where they fit in, he actually says that they are less long-lived than men and dwarves. We know that Bolg, the son of Azog, lived to be at least 150, but that was considered somewhat exceptional. The average lifespan of orcs, maybe 60, maybe 80, somewhere in that, which is, you know, pretty decent by, like, human standards today. But, of course, the men of Numenor were much longer-lived. The the high men and even the middle men of this period of, of Middle-earth's history were much more long lived in that. Remember, as Aragorn is running around here at the end of the Two Towers, he's 90 years old, right? That's that's somewhat exceptional because he is, you know, the descendant of Elendil. He is the descendant of, of Isildur. Like, he's actually carrying the, the blood of Numenor in his veins. But other men, too, are relatively long-lived. Orcs are apparently less so. But there is this interesting idea that certain fallen Maiar have inhabited the bodies of orcs, right? That That spirits have gone out into the world and taken up either the bodies of orcs or the form of orcs, and they, of course, are actually immortal. So there may be some immortal orcs, like great leaders and great chieftains and and, and great warriors of, of the orcish people. They may actually be immortal. I tend to believe that general orcs actually live a, a shorter period of time, but that doesn't remove any point of interest from Shagrat's mention here of, of the Great Siege. Because that speaks to cultural memory. That speaks to orcish culture in a more powerful way, arguably, than anything else that we get here. Like brawling and squabbling and all of that stuff that we associate with orcs, the, the, the feasting and the bloodletting and the cruelty and all of that stuff, that's... that's fine but incidental. But the memory of what has passed... Shagrat also talks about the good old days, right? And he's clearly talking about the good old days thousands of years before, right? He's talking about a long, long time ago when he's talking about the good old days. I don't believe that Shagrat has any personal memory of those good old days either. It is ambiguous in the text, though. You could certainly argue that he is, in fact, immortal. And if you believe that the orcs are corrupted elves, which, by this point, good lord, I think by this point that was what the professor was going... No, I guess not. I guess the, those revisions had had already been put in place, so, so probably not by this point. Anyway, if you believe that the orcs are corrupted elves, then presumably they are every bit as immortal as the elves are. That doesn't account for how we have millions of them. It doesn't account for how many orcs there are in Middle-earth, but yeah, it's an interesting point of speculation at least. Um, Let's see. Oh, I didn't. I didn't uh, delete that question from Shane. There. Uh, oh, Angela's. Okay, here it is. What are the two towers? Asks Angela. Are they physical locations or concepts? A physical. Which towers is the title referring to? Okay, this is probably going to be our last question tonight. This is a great way to end our session here. What are the two towers? Well, what are the possibilities of the two towers? First off, we get in a sense, two opposed pairs. The most striking opposed pair is Minas Tirith and formerly Minas Ithil, now Minas Morgul, the two towers that flank the city of Asgiliath, right? That tower, that that tower citadel fortress that is still held by the men of Gondor and the one that has fallen to the Nazgul, the one that is populated now with dark magic. Those are two towers, and they are representative of light and dark. The white tower of, of Minas Tirith and the black tower of Minas Morgul I'm perfectly happy for those to be the two towers that we're describing here, right? But there is another pair of towers which are also interesting, Orthanc and Barador. I'm interested in if, and, and obviously, right, when Tolkien titled this book, this was not his first choice for the title of the second volume of The Lord of the Rings, but when he titled it, he actually liked the ambiguity, right? He, he liked the fact that it wasn't pinned down. He enjoyed the fact that there are possible different interpretations here. Is the... I mean, okay, theoretically, I suppose the actual towers that we see, the towers with which we interact are 
are Orthanc and Minas Morgul, right? We don't we don't go to Minas Tirith yet. Hey, stay tuned for next week on there and back again when we finally arrive at Minas Tirith. But and we also, of course, don't reach Barador yet either. So it's possible that I guess we're talking about I guess we're talking about Orthanc and Minas Morgul. We could we could do that too, right? There are two towers in this story, and they both appear at the end of their their related books. So we end book three at Orthanc in Isengard, and we end book four in Minas Morgul in the Morgul Vale. Okay, actually, like, like, not bad. There's a nice parallelism there that works pretty well for me. The thematic opposition is also really interesting. Light and dark, if we're talking about Minas Tirith and, and uh, Minas Morgul, is, is clear and is stark. What is the thematic opposition between Orthanc and Barador? Or is there a thematic opposition? Is there, in fact... Uh, a, a kind of uh, reflective symmetry between the two. We have the 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 black of of Barador. We have the 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 red eye, and we have the white hand of of Saruman. Yeah, there's there's a certain amount of opposition there. If I had to strip it down, if I had to to look at it cleanly. I think I would be tempted. Actually, I, I think I've just talked myself into it. I think I now think. That the two towers that the title of this volume refers to are, are most applicable to uh, to Orthanc and Minas Morgul. What do you guys think? What do you make of that? Um, oh, look at that! Glowinson says Tolkien's cover art for two towers was Orthanc and Minas Morgul. I'd completely forgotten that, Glowinson. You're absolutely right. Yes, excellent, excellent. Um, let me see. Oh, okay. No, we're, we're we're all being very quiet now in the chat. We don't really want to get into the minutia of this question. Oh, Nikki's saying Orthanc and Minas Morgul too. There you go. Defined. Done. Nikki agrees with me. I, I'm. That's enough for me. Those are the two towers that we're referring to through the two towers brackets while recognizing the thematic symmetry between Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul and Orthanc and Barador, right? I, I think that works pretty, pretty nicely there. Um, are there any other ways of interpreting the two towers? Hmm. I don't think so. I, I think that in order to interpret the two towers as anything other than two of those four towers, I think you'd have to be, you'd have to be stretching a metaphorical point, I think, in order to make that work. Are Frodo and Sam really the two towers? Are Frodo and Gollum really the two towers? Are, are Boromir and Faramir really the two towers? Yeah, no, probably not. Probably not. I, I, I would have to stretch a long way to get there, and I'm just not sure that that, that sits nicely for me. But yeah, I, I like that opposition between Orthanc and, uh, and Minas Morgul, the, uh, yeah, I, I, there is also, I suppose, a vibrant primary connection between Saruman's craft and the magic of the Nazgul. Right? These are these are different things. Uh, there, there is a physicality to Saruman's engagement at Isengard that we lack at Minas Morgul. Remember how the, the entire veil is is empty except for that feeling of being watched, that presence, and then the great host rides out. I like that. I, I like that quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. That that I think will do it, you guys. Um, let me see here. Yeah, I think that's going to do it. I'm out of time and I'm going to have to wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining me. Let me let me advance to the very last slide here so that I can show you what we are doing next week. Next week is going to be a really interesting discussion as we move into The Return of the King, Book 5, Chapter 1, entitled Minas Tirith, the aforementioned Minas Tirith. We're going to finally get there. We're going to spend some time in the company of Pippin and Gandalf. That is going to take place at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, next Thursday night. That is March the 22nd. And as I said, the whole production schedule for There and Back Again is currently available. The link is in the show notes. You'll find the link there to the, uh, the Google Drive spreadsheet where I have the whole thing laid out. Thank you also for your patience with regard to the podcast release schedule over the course of the last week. The website has now been completely taken apart and rebuilt properly, and it's working, which is great. That now means that there will be no delay with the release of these podcasts, and you should get them as usual in your podcatcher of choice. That is going to do it. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, Erica's asking what chapters are we reading for Good Omens in the Patreon-exclusive book club yet? I actually have... 
here we are. Let me hold this up to the camera. Let me cancel the slide and hold this up to the camera. I have my copy of Good Omens right here. And the reason that I got this physical copy of Good Omens is because... Well, it's kind of divided into chapters, but it's long chapters. Let me look here. I haven't announced this yet. I think we're going to read the first 72 pages. We are going to read up to Wednesday for our first section. That is maybe looking at this a sixth of the book, but I also want to talk a little about the history of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman and the origin story for this, this fantastic book. I love Good Omens. That is in the patron-exclusive book club. So if you support Point North, either through patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia or coffee, ko-fi.com slash pointnorthmedia or simply paypal.me slash pointnorthmedia, then you get access to that discussion. It's going to be an absolute blast. We're going to spend, I think, the next six weeks talking about Good Omens, and I'm very, very excited. And of course, if you do pledge your support as a new patron to Point North Media, then you get access to all of the old book clubs, too. We've discussed... Gosh, Angela, what have we discussed? We've discussed so many things. We discussed A Wrinkle in Time. We just finished up A Wrinkle in Time. We discussed Murder on the Orient Express. We discussed... Uh, other things, many things in the past, so many books, I can't even remember. Totoro, uh, yeah, that, was one of the, uh, that was one of the Point North one-shots. You can also find new Point North one-shots over at pointnorthmedia.com. I just recorded last night as I'm recording this, the second of, I know, the, the hypocritically named second one-shot uh, episode on The Princess Bride. I spent a brilliant hour last night talking about The Princess Bride and breaking down how that story works and what that story is about. You can find that right now over on pointnorthmedia.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I really have to go. I will talk to you all again soon. Oh, hey, checkers, guys to the galaxy yes thank you erica i appreciate it <laughs> also patreon exclusive book club subject i really will talk to you all again next week when we start the return of the king until then good night take care and fly you fools fly you fools